The art market is one of the purest free markets in the world. And art gets revalued every time there is a recordable transaction. When a Picasso drawing from 1920 sells, that gets recorded. And that data all sets the value of Picasso drawings. As an economist, which was my undergraduate training, I love the art market. It's fascinating to me. It's also changed a lot in the last 30, 40 years in that it has truly become global. The ability of a buyer from China or from Russia or from anywhere in the world to participate is now very easy to do. And so that has made it a true global market. It's also driven up the prices because a lot of these people have new wealth and they either want to own the art or they want to be known to own the art. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hey, 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 we're in the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode number 99. It reminds me of Maxwell Smart and Agent 99. So what an exciting episode we have with you. Michael Ainsley is my guest. Michael's actually a friend of Howard Anderson, who was my very, very first episode on the SIDCast way back in season one and still actually one of the most popular. Michael has had a pretty dynamic business career president and CEO of Sotheby's for 10 years, and he was president and CEO of the National Trust for Historical Preservation, which he did before that. He's been a board member at Lehman Brothers, which we talk about extensively. He's been involved in Vanderbilt University and St. Joe Company, United States Tennis Association, and lots of other things, and maybe especially supporting high schoolers in education. And I'm going to talk about that and we do talk about that in this episode. Michael Ainsley is a very successful business person and has had a front row seat in some of the pretty serious things that have happened, especially Lehman Brothers in the financial crisis of 2008. And so what are we going to talk about today? What's a quick preview for you? Here are three quick points. Number one, mega crises from FDR taking power just when the world was falling apart during the Great Depression to COVID and the financial stimulus package under President Biden to, as I just mentioned, Lehman Brothers and the 2008 and ongoing financial crisis. And Michael has a very strong point of view about this. Sitting on the board of Lehman, and Lehman, of course, was blamed for lots of things that went wrong. And they played a role in it, just like every other major financial institution played a role in it. But Michael's going to share some information with us in our conversation that maybe will give us a little bit wider perspective. He'll talk about Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary and was the architect of a lot of what happened with respect to the savings and support of the financial system in 2008. The question is, you know, who was responsible? And was it Lehman Brothers or was it Hank Paulson or was it Bank of America or Goldman Sachs or anyone else? And so Michael Ainsley's got a point of view and he's going to share it with us. And it's going to be pretty interesting, I think, around Lehman Brothers. That's point number one. Point number two, as the CEO of Sotheby's, 
I have this soft spot for the art market and art industry. It's just such a kind of crazy industry. What justifies some of the prices for artwork? How does the art market work? What does value mean? What is supply and demand? And what is quality compared to pricing? And some of you may recall that I had an episode 87 in January of 2021. Chad Elias, professor at Dartmouth College, is my guest. He had taught a course called Art and Money. And during COVID, I took his course through Zoom and found it so, so fascinating. And so we get to return to some of the challenges of the art world and how someone who was a CEO of Sotheby's for 10 years thought about that market, thinks about that market. And that's point number two. And point number three is the thing that if you ask Michael, what does he care the most about right now and maybe for some time, it's the Posse Foundation, which he helped launch back in 1994. He served as the board chair for Posse, serves on their foundation. What do they do? Well, Posse finds young leaders from public and parochial high schools in 10 major cities and sends them to one of over 50 elite university partners as a cohort of 10 Posse scholars. The first university partner was Vanderbilt University. There are many, many others. It's kind of amazing that over 9,000 Posse scholars have now gone through this system and have won over a billion dollars in scholarships, very high graduation rate. And now, you know, this has been happening for a number of years. And there are Posse alums that are partners in law firms. One is president of a college and others a CEO. They've been very, very successful. And these are people, again, from underprivileged backgrounds that have had a chance to go to university. And I think the genius of the Posse idea is that there are 10 kids that go together to a school. They form a cohort. And so they have a natural support group, a natural team. And I briefly touched on this last week with Marjorie Radlow Zandi as my guest about the importance of having a team. But I've seen it myself for a long time at Dartmouth and at other places as well. You know, universities go out of their way to admit students from very underprivileged backgrounds and they think their job is done. You know, we have diversity, we did a good thing, this is great, but then they leave these kids to sink or swim. And even when they have a full scholarship, they still need to spend money to live. There's often no bank account. You know, parents are not doing Venmo transfers or much else. And so these kids have to earn money to live on. They have to work while going to school, which is not a bad thing at all, but they still have to do it and many of their classmates do not. And they're competing with kids that are spending their leisure hours doing well, sometimes for leisure and sometimes, you know, working with professors and research jobs and other things as well. So there's actually an ongoing disadvantage that underprivileged kids have when they go to university that probably we in the university sector have to do more to try to address. And that's another reason why I like this posse idea, because they send a cohort of people. You know, I was watching this movie In the Heights that was just on HBO and still is on HBO at least as of July of 2021. And in the movie, you know, one of the stars, a young woman who is described in the film as the hope of the barrio, is smart enough to get into Stanford, but she's planning to drop out because it feels like Mars for her. There's no support group. There's no community. She's surrounded by kids that are really different from her. And in the movie, there's even this scene she describes where she was accused of stealing a classmate's jewelry because of the way that she looked. And we have to stop just admitting students from underprivileged backgrounds to get our diversity numbers up and to feel good about ourselves unless we're willing to do some of the hard work that is needed to help them fit in, to give them that support network. And that's what I like about Michael Ainsley's work for the Posse Foundation. There is really a village in place. There is a cohort. They have this support group from day one. And that's just such a great thing. 
So Michael Ainsley is a fascinating guest for me and for us. Lots to learn from, pretty diverse things that he's done in his career, but I think really appropriate to bring him in and really appropriate to be, you know, episode 99 as we get closer to that magical 100. Michael Ainsley, here we go. Welcome to the SIDcast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with Michael Ainsley. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sid. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you on. I'm very excited to talk to you about lots of different things. We're still dealing with a COVID world. The vaccines have helped dramatically, and we're so much better off. But you were involved with another gigantic global crisis, more financially oriented, but with long-reaching implications, and that's Lehman Brothers. And in fact, you were a board member at Lehman in 2008, right? I was, yes. I'd been on that board for about 10 years at that point. Yeah. So as many listeners will know, Lehman Brothers ended their life around September, was it the 14th or 15th of 2008? I remember it well. Yeah, I'm sure you do, in fact. And that was almost the peak of the financial crisis. I mean, it continued afterwards, but that was when things came to a head. And that's when around that time, companies like AIG were saved. There were acquisitions that happened. Merrill Lynch was acquired uh, by Bank of America and the global financial system fell apart. So let's start on that happy note. Did you, as a board member of Lehman, see anything like this coming? Did you ever have any conversations that something like this could happen? Worst case scenario. No, we couldn't imagine that the Federal Reserve would stop lending to a major bank, which we were. They have a responsibility to do that, and we had plenty of collateral. We ran out of cash. It was a liquidity crisis, and it should never have happened. It really, in retrospect, has hurt the global economy so massively, and frankly, it could well have been avoided. So could you walk us through a little bit about what happened, in particular that weekend? When did the crisis hit kind of this virtual peak, and what happened at that time? Like, what triggered this all right at that time? Well, we were in advanced conversations with Barclays about them acquiring Lehman. And every indication was that that was going forward. We were uh, called to New York, the board of 10 of us on that weekend. And we met, oh, 15 times that week before coming to New York on the phone. And then came up for an in-person meeting and spent the day in the boardroom fully expecting that a Barclays deal would be approved. Unfortunately, it turned out that there was a technical requirement that Barclays had to get shareholder approval before doing that. And their CEO and the chancellor of the exchequer in England, effectively their treasury secretary, decided not to grant a waiver. And so they basically said, Barclays, you cannot merge with Lehman. Why did they not grant a waiver given the situation? The answer is ludicrous. Alistair Darling said, we don't want to import your cancer. Well, Lehman's subsidiary in Europe was headquartered in London, and they were fully financed by Lehman, the parent. And as soon as we went under, they went under. And the cancer, if you want to call it that, was imported to England and to Europe and the entire globe, as we all remember. This was a choice that was made by Secretary Paulson. He decided in his own judgment that he'd better save AIG, which was bigger than Lehman and had bigger problems because of lots of underwritings they had done, and also because they owed a lot of money to Goldman Sachs, where he had been the CEO until two or three years earlier. He decided that he would save them, and he did that with an $85 billion loan the following few days after Lehman went under. 
and that he would let Lehman be collateral damage. And he could have saved both. And a lot of people believe that. But why would he choose to do that? Because, you know, clearly it made things worse in the global financial crisis. It certainly did. I would only have to say that he and Dick Fall, the CEO of Lehman, were not close. They had had contentious relations before. I think that was part of it. I think his concern about saving Goldman was lurking behind the scenes there. And I think he was fearful. I think he didn't believe he had enough political capital Mm -hmm. to go and get the job done. There's another book out there that I'd like to suggest if any of your listeners are real financial historians. The Dean of Economics at Johns Hopkins, his name is Larry Ball, has written the ultimate book on the Fed and Lehman Brothers. And that book, he makes it very clear that Lehman had plenty of collateral to be given an adequate loan to at least survive through the worst of the crisis. Maybe the shareholders' equity would have been wiped out. But the problem was that causing the bankruptcy triggered, basically banks stopped trusting each other and stopped working together and the global financial world froze. I don't think Paulson anticipated how bad that crisis would become. Yeah. But to kind of connect the dots or make it clear, I mean, you're saying something that's quite a uh, powerful thing, which is that Hank Paulson made a choice. And it sounds like partially influenced by his own personal network or career to save Goldman Sachs and not Lehman Brothers. Is that what you're saying? I think that's part of it. I can't put myself in his mind, but let me give you one other example. The chairman of the Federal Reserve, who was Ben Bernanke, is supposed to be the lender of last resort and the lender to financial institutions. It's not the secretary of the treasury. It is the head of the Federal Reserve who's supposed to make those decisions. Paulson took over that decision-making. Bernanke basically abdicated his role. This has been proven very clearly in later work and publications, and he let Paulson make the decision to stop providing financing. There's another interesting aspect. Chase was our clearing bank for Lehman, J.P. Morgan Chase. On Tuesday before the infamous Sunday uh, bankruptcy, Paulson and Bernanke had a meeting with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. In that meeting, we don't know what happened. There was no recording that was publicly uh, made available to know what they talked about. However, after that meeting, this is, remember, five or six days before the bankruptcy, the head of banking for J.P. Morgan called up Dick Fuld and said, we want more collateral. We want $5 billion more collateral, cash collateral. He then called up the next day and said, we want $3.6 more billion. In the last three days, they took $8.6 billion of Lehman's cash collateral, which apparently they had the right to do because there was a big lawsuit that went on for several years. And in the fine print of the loan agreement, the banks had the right to say, we want more collateral. Well, That nonetheless took about 30% of Lehman's liquidity instantly like that, and that caused the run on the bank that basically that week brought Lehman down. So there was clearly some conversation that went on between Paulson and Jamie Dimon that also looks like there was a decision made that they were not going to support Lehman Brothers. I recently read Jonathan Alter's book, The First 100 Days, about FDR's presidency, at least the beginning of it in particular. And he took office in March, inauguration day, actually was March, not January, in 1933. 
And it was exactly at that time when I was reading, I was thinking, that sounds like what you just talked about in some ways, but sounds like even worse because there was a run on almost every bank. Different governors had declared bank holidays including, I think, even New York State and Illinois, which are the two big ones. And nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew what to do. And it was really kind of fascinating to listen to. I mean, it's not a book about finance as much as it's a book about his personality and about politics, obviously. But it did remind me a little bit about all the different players and how people are trying to figure out what to do. And also is, you know, it's a little bit like what we're seeing and have been seeing with COVID. And how do you fix it? What do you do? Not that long ago, President Biden managed to pass the giant stimulus package. And is that the answer? And it's too early to tell, but, you know, hopefully will be a big part. So when these, I guess my point is when these kind of once in a generation, let's call it, it's probably not anymore. It happens too often, but we'll call it once in a generation, really disastrous situations, whether they're economic, political, or health, as we have with COVID. People have to figure things out in real time, super fast. And I think a lot of people have noticed that with the vaccine rollout, the rules changed. Every state had something different that they were doing and you know, we're in a lot better shape now, but it was nerve wracking for a lot of people. And so I guess I'm wondering whether you can comment about that, about this point about how people had to kind of figure out in real time what to do. There was no real playbook for it. And obviously under those circumstances, you got to have some good luck. Mistakes are going to happen. And also to think about in the context now or over the last you know, year and change on COVID, what you've been seeing and what you've been observing as someone you know, who's really been in central leadership positions in a lot of different places over your career. Yes, I do have some real sympathy for people that, for example, as we were just talking of, Hank Paulson was in a very, very high pressured situation and he did what he thought was right. I just think that, you know, I've watched Biden and the way he's been able to push through this very large stimulus package and COVID relief package. I think that had Paulson put together a coalition of both President Bush, who was not very helpful at that time. He wanted, there were even expressions of a skin on the wall. He wanted to see somebody go down. But unfortunately, they didn't understand the world impact. There's an organization, the OECD, that did post Lehman's bankruptcy. They've looked at world growth rates in, I think there were 29 major countries. They have more countries than that in the group. The projection was that the growth rates in those 29 countries were substantially below what they would have been had there not been the Lehman bankruptcy. In other words, something like 9 or 10% below. Well, that's global poverty. That hits everybody. And those were the ramifications that I think either weren't understood or were too cavalier in their dismissal of them. So who knows if it had been different, yeah. the world might be in a different place today. Let's talk a little bit, Michael, about the personal side to this and the human side and what it felt like to actually be there. I mean, you were in the room. That's kind of like the Alexander Hamilton song, you know, you were in the room where it happened. <laughs> what were the emotions? Were you nervous? Were you angry? Were you, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, what were the emotions that were running through your head at that time? At first, it was just enormously scary. Not only was it going to affect tens of thousands of Lehman people and others in the industry, but it was going to lead to a huge economic downturn in the world. So there was a lot of anger. There was also some guilt. I mean, what did we do wrong? Could we have avoided it? Should we have made a different choice when our CEO promoted a person to be president who happened to be a lot like him? Would a different person have taken less risk in terms of investing 
Lehman's big Achilles heel was too much real estate, not subprime real estate, but commercial and developmental real estate. That was a very profitable business in that time frame, and there were a lot of fees earned. And the president, the number two guy in the company, loved that business. If we had had a different president, probably we would have been less leveraged and less exposed. So there were a lot of those kinds of questions that one asks themselves. You know, we weren't able to talk for uh, literally five, six years. The lawyers, we were in litigation over this for six years, I think. And finally, after it was over, I wrote a book called A Nose for Trouble, which is my own memoir about some of those experiences, as well as a lot of others in my life. And I express a lot of those feelings in that book. And it was very, for me, it was very cathartic to, to write it down. In a, and I must say, I've had some very warm and good feelings, even though I, I didn't pull any punches about some of the things Dick Fall did wrong and some of the things we as a board might have done wrong. I had a good lawyer look at it, let me assure you that. <laughs> in any event, the book has been very satisfying in terms of the feedback I've gotten. So in your years on the board, when there was this overrepresentation in commercial real estate and leverage that you just described, what did you do as a board or what could you do? This is something a lot of people don't, both they don't understand, they haven't been on boards, even if they have, they don't fully appreciate just what the relationship is between a board of directors and a CEO. I've worked with a lot of boards over the years and people sometimes wonder or ask, you know, why didn't the board do something? Why weren't they more aggressive? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And of course, it's always easier after the fact to say what should have happened. We all know that. But there are cases where boards give a CEO lots and lots of leeway to do what he or she wants. But it's a complex dance, really. It's a difficult scenario. And I wonder whether you could kind of shed a little bit of light on the board process at Lehman. And not necessarily just right at that time, but even in the years leading up to it in terms of how does this get done and what kind of oversight was given to the CEO? Well, Lehman had an unusual model for its board. Seven of the 10 of us were former CEOs who had fairly recently retired or left their positions. The reason being that we weren't in the finance markets raising capital or buying companies any longer, and so we were not conflicted. Uh, we also had Henry Kaufman, who was a top economist. We had a retired admiral, Marcia Evans, and of course, our CEO, Dick Fold. So it was a pretty experienced group. I'll give you an example. One of the chairman of our audit committee was the former managing, not managing partner, one of the senior partners of Arthur Anderson. He knew audit and accounting cold. Very smart guy. The former head of IBM, John Akers, the former head of the uh, XM Bank, John McCumber, and former CEO of Selenese as well. So there was a lot of wisdom and experience. Mm -hmm. We had a very dynamic relationship with Dick Fold, our CEO. We would have dinner the night before board meetings, and there'd be a lot of candid conversation about where we stood as a company and some of his longer-term goals and strategies. We were the small guy. We were the upstart. And frankly, we were doing very well. We took a lot of key people away from other firms like Goldman and Morgan Stanley. We had just taken George Walker, who now is a top guy on Wall Street, a cousin of George Bush. He had just left Goldman to come over to Lehman and run our asset management group. So we felt very good about the culture that we were building and so on. I will say this, I think in retrospect, if you look back at that era, virtually every firm that got acquired lost their culture. 
And let me give you a few examples. Alex Brown was bought by Deutsche Bank. Payne Weber was bought. There were many others. I'm losing track of some of them now. J.P. Morgan Chase. Chase merged with J.P. Morgan. It was no longer J.P. Morgan. It was Chase. And so what I think was Dick Fald's fear was that he was building a great firm with a great culture and a great team spirit. And I think he feared too long that if he merged, he would lose that culture. And there were many examples out there of that. So did he wait too long? In retrospect, yes. He should have found a merger partner much earlier. Yeah. You know, Merrill Lynch was acquired. I guess that deal was announced at the same time. Everything was going on at the same time. That very weekend. That that very weekend. And by the way, Merrill Lynch's involvement in subprime led to literally, I think, 50 billion of write-offs after that fact. Their exposure in subprime was so much bigger than anybody else's and cost Bank of America years of write-offs. Yeah. I think the price they paid was so much lower than it would have been before the financial crisis, but they still ended up continuing to pay because of exactly what you're saying. But I had wondered, and maybe you've answered a little bit, but I'll just ask it again to make sure we're clear, why it was that it wasn't Lehman Brothers that was bought by J.P. Morgan, why it was a a Merrill Lynch. We actually went to Bank of America. Ken, uh, the CEO, was approached. Ken Lewis, right. Ken Lewis was approached by Fald, and unbeknownst to Fald, he was a few hours late. John Thane of Merrill Lynch, former Goldman Sachs partner and the CEO then of Merrill Lynch, had just called and said, we got to do a deal because things are not going well. So there was not a chair left in the room for us. But let me give you one other example. And I think this, again, this is financial history that's getting to be a little ancient. But there was a company out there that Lehman acquired called Archstone. Archstone was the largest owner of luxury apartments. I think their value was $22 billion. We acquired that company in the last few weeks of our existence, or maybe a few months. And the plan was to joint venture it with another real estate company and then refinance it and do various things with it. It was a very well-run company, great assets. But in the crisis of the moment, it became illiquid. And once we owned it, that became a big illiquid asset. We've asked ourselves there, should the board have not allowed that to go forward? There was a huge breakup fee. So it would have been very costly to not. But in retrospect, again, we would have been better off to eaten that breakup fee. So there's a case where the board didn't do something it might have. But one of the things that's interesting in all of the postmortems, there's something that's done after a bankruptcy, which is called an examiner's report. Mm -hmm. And a firm from Chicago was hired to do that. And believe it or not, they spent $100 million on the forensic evidence to put together that examiner's report. They concluded there was no malfeasance. There was no lack of carrying out of responsibilities by the audit committee, the board, or management. They literally said Lehman became illiquid in the last five or six days of its existence due to the things I spoke about earlier So we were too leveraged, but that's not a crime. We had the same levels of leverage as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. But when the liquidity ran out, we couldn't open up for business the next day. It does point out the incredible importance of an old-fashioned word, trust. The entire economy, maybe we should say society, operates on trust, uh, much more than I think most people realize. 
you know, you're driving down the highway and you're going to turn into the left lane. You're trusting that someone's not going to do that at the same time or will pay attention to you. I mean, it's a trivial example. And of course, sometimes accidents happen like that. But I think the financial system depends on trust. There's all these loans and interrelationships and you lose trust. Everything falls apart. It's really kind of remarkable. It's very true. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I have one more question about all this. And it reminds me, again, I'm thinking back to the FDR book about the 100 days and the financial crisis and the bankruptcies that were going on. There was a lot of anger back then. And there certainly was in the 2008 time period from, let's call it the average person, Main Street, as opposed to Wall Street, certainly the press. And the question that everyone was asking, or a lot of people were asking is, well, why aren't any of these CEOs going to jail? Why aren't they paying the price? Because look what happened to me. What's your take on that? I don't mean necessarily for Lehman. That's up to you if you want to talk about that. But just more generally, there's a sense in society that the people that got us in this trouble, the major banks, they got bailed out. There's an exception called Lehman and Bear Stearns went out of business, but they got bailed out. And most of those people still have jobs and ended up doing reasonably well, sometimes exceptionally well. But so many people suffered on Main Street. How do you think about that? What do you think about that, that argument? I know it's palpable. People, an awful lot of people feel that way. You know, I take a broader perspective on it. Congress made some decisions about wanting to have more people own their homes. And Congress literally opened the floodgates to the subprime mortgage crisis. You remember this. They were changing the lending standards. Do they go to jail for that decision? Because that, in a sense, is what really precipitated the flooding of money into these financial instruments that finance these subprime mortgages. The word subprime means the borrower is not a very highly rated borrower. So no, I don't think a lot of CEOs should have gone to jail. They didn't do anything illegal. There are some that did in some of the savings and loans and some others, and some of them did get caught and they should have. Uh, But I think that the whole system was too leveraged and it was driven by legislation that, frankly, was well-intentioned but ill-conceived. And by the way, Dodd-Frank has made some serious improvements. They've made uh, banks much less leveraged and made capital requirements much stronger. Uh, By and large, I think those were improvements to what was an over-leveraged system at that point. So let's switch gears because you had multiple careers (laughs) and one of them was in the art world, which I'm just fascinated by, you know, you and I connected, I guess, through our mutual friend, Howard Anderson, who was one of my very first guests on the SIDCast when I first started this little project. And I think you even come to, or will be going to his class to teach a case study. You were the CEO of Sotheby's for 10 years. And I want to talk about art as a business first, before we get into, you know, the running of Sotheby's and You know, of course, there was a scandal there, too, with Mr. Taubman, of course, as well. But I took a course at Dartmouth during the lockdown when I wasn't teaching in person. I wasn't traveling anywhere, so I had more time. And I took a course, an undergraduate course. I guess I was the oldest kid in the class. Such smart kids, it really makes you humble. (laughs) And it was called Art and Money. And it was taught by an art historian, not an economist, not a business school guy, but an art historian, a very smart, interesting professor, Chad Elias. I actually, I did a podcast with him too. I was so interested in it. And one of the first things we talk about in that class is what is art worth? How do you value what any work of art is? And then subsequent to that, I've seen a bunch of movies and read more about this. And I find it absolutely fascinating. That was your business. How do you figure out what a work of art is worth? How do you know this? 
the art market is one of the purest free markets in the world. And art gets revalued every time there is a recordable transaction. When a Picasso drawing from 1920 sells, that gets recorded and that data all sets the value of Picasso drawings. As an economist, which was my undergraduate training, I love the art market. It's fascinating to me. It's also changed a lot in the last 30, 40 years in that it has truly become global. The ability of a buyer from China or from Russia or from anywhere in the world to participate is now very easy to do. And so that has made it a true global market. It's also driven up the prices because a lot of these people have new wealth and they either want to own the art or they want to be known to own the art. And that's an important point because a lot of art collecting is about the ego of the buyer. And some of that, frankly, has gone gone a little too far. When paintings are selling for the price of companies, three or four hundred million dollars, that is a little crazy. But that's what's happened. I think the involvement of wealthy individuals and frequently very newly wealthy individuals in the art market has driven prices to levels that are really quite remarkable. And frankly, I think a lot of people have trouble with that. When paintings cost three or four hundred million dollars, even though they're some of the great works of art, that seems excessive. And so it's a market that's probably overheated and really gotten to be too easy to become visible through buying a great work of art. So who determines what a work of art is worth? We used to have an expression in the auction world, we love our underbidders. The underbidder is the person who bid almost as much as the price, but didn't get it. So it takes two bidders to have an auction, and the underbidder really is the one who pushes the bidder to go to one more level. So uh, in a sense, the underbidder sets the price. (laughs) That's a funny way to look at it, but we could keep going on this. So there's an artist like Banksy, who's a street artist, and as you well know, and his works are going, I think one of his works sold for $10 million not that long ago. The banana, yeah. How does this get the term? You see, more generally, I'm interested in how does society decide what anything is worth? For example, how much is a CEO worth? You know, something you understand very, very well. How much is a work of art worth? How much is a hockey player? I'm Canadian, so I say hockey player, but let's say football player. How much is a professional athlete worth? And there are ways that these are determined, but I don't know whether anything other than maybe a simple supply and demand or what the market will bear, some kind of like classic aphorisms about pricing. I don't know if there's anything more than that that we could say. I find it interesting to think about and compare across these different worlds what something is worth. Well, I think what's interesting about the art world and art pricing is ultimately pricing doesn't determine the quality. Just because something's very expensive, a Basquiat or a Picasso, it's really the body of work of that artist. This is why I think art historians are so important and young people that come to me and they say they want to go work in the art world. And I say, well, look, that's a very noble ambition and you really need to go get a job as an assistant at a museum Museum curators really build up the knowledge of the work, the work of an artist. And over time, that's what I think is more important even than the price of, you know, one work or a a few works by that artist. It's interesting. An expert at Sotheby's has to look at 500, 1,000 works of art in a year. An expert in a museum may look at five or 10. They take the time to really study the quality of the work, the time in history, the point that the artwork was done, 
all of those things that go into ultimately determining how important that artist was. So fortunately, there is a another academic and intellectual side to art that's not just driven by the market pricing. Right. It's a pretty complex industry, it seems to me, because you have your art historians, of course, your giant auction houses, but you have galleries, you have artists, you have critics, curators. There are a lot of players that all kind of get into this melange of activity that determines, in a sense, there's a determination, which is too strong a word, but I'll just stick with it, of how society thinks about, not just values, but thinks about different types of art, different works of art. And of course, that changes all the time. It's an ecosystem in the art world, which is really interesting to me. I'll give you a good example of that dynamic at work. We sold a painting by Van Gogh, The Irises, which is now in the Getty Museum, back in the late 80s. And it was bought by an Australian businessman named Alan Bond. He paid $53.9 million for that painting. It wasn't known until Geraldine Norman the critic of the London Times, the art critic, kept digging and digging. And she finally found out that Sotheby's had provided half of that purchase price as a loan to Bond. Well, it wasn't illegal to lend against art, but it was a new thing. It hadn't been done at that time. Well, as soon as she starts writing about it, so here you have the auction house, you've got a buyer in Bond, you've got a financing arrangement, You've got this critic, and suddenly the other art collectors start calling up Mr. Taubman and calling me up, people like Leonard Lauder and the owner of Leon Black, a few other people call up and say, you are inflating the value of art by making a loan to people like Alan Bond. Well, you know, they probably were right. So I spent the next few weeks in looking at this. And we decided at Sotheby's in the late 80s to stop financing purchases. So the buyers could no longer borrow from us. They could borrow maybe from Citibank or somewhere else, but not from us. I think that was an example of those different forces, collectors, critics, others at work. And it probably led to an improvement in the practices Mm -hmm. in the art market because we probably were inflating values by providing leverage to buyers. It's very interesting. I think there are several different companies, startups even, that are trying to, I'll say, innovate in the financial side of art. You probably know about a bunch of them, but you know, people could buy shares in a bundle of art, for example, which you probably couldn't have done decades or a couple of decades ago. I think there's some hedge fund activity in the art world. Maybe there always has been from the individuals because they're wealthy, but actual hedge fund investments. It's a bit of a, I don't know if it's right to say, but you know, a wild west of finance because you know, historically it's been really rich people, rich families buying stuff and keeping it and maybe donating it at some point. But it's a real business that can be captured where some of the value or some of the wealth can be captured by a lot of players. That's what I think, I think, I think there, are, there are a lot of those funds being created. There was actually the British Rail Pension Fund back in the 80s in my day. They made a conscious decision to take mm-hmm. several hundred million pounds and buy art. And they invested broadly across Chinese, French paintings. They were very, very fortunate to buy heavily in Impressionist art, which has been historically the most solid appreciation. And they did very well. They finally liquidated their portfolio probably around 2000, late 1990s. And I think they did something in the mid-teens over a 20-year period of time investing in art. It does seem to hold its value. And 
I was quite shocked to see the new owner of Sotheby's. Patrick Drahi, a, a Frenchman, just bought Sotheby's a few months ago, or maybe last year, and he paid $3.7 billion for Sotheby's. When I was there, Taubman and his group of investors bought it for $130 million. So I actually did the compound return in my math mind and found that between Taubman's purchase in 83 and Drahi's purchase in 2019, that was a 9% compound return for that auction house for 36 years. It's a pretty good return for a long-term investment. Now, did he overpay? Immediately after he bought it, COVID hit Mm. and the art market got hurt, though not that badly in some ways. But the other thing that happened was, as you were saying earlier, Sid, three art dealers went together and bought the Don Marin estate. Don Marin, a former head of Payne Weber and a great collector, former head of the Museum of Modern Art, had collected a beautiful collection of post-war art. And it was bought by these three dealers, Aquavella, Gagosian, and Arnie Glemsher at Pace. And they paid 500, well, nobody knows exactly, but they paid in the vicinity of 450 to 500 million. That had never happened. Art dealers buying a large estate collection like that, that had not happened. Is that another new trend? Will auction houses no longer be the only way to liquidate a big estate? In their case, they probably, the estate trustees probably made a good decision. Yeah, that is really interesting to think about. There's a movie I saw not that long ago. It's a pretty new movie. I don't know if you've seen it yet. It's called Made You Look. And it's about the, uh, am I saying this right, the Nodler Gallery in New York and maybe the biggest art fraud. I don't know if it's the biggest, but one of the biggest ever. And the story is that an unknown person, a woman by the name of uh, Glafira Rosales, a woman from Long Island, didn't really have much connection to the art world, but she claimed that she represented a wealthy anonymous collector who wanted to uh, start to liquidate some of his uh, holdings and sold a Rothko, a Mark Rothko to the gallery, and I think the gallery curator or director was Anne Friedman, uh, who's in the art world become pretty legendary because of all this, at you know something like $750,000, which is truly a fire sale price. But in fact, it was a forgery, and it was the beginning of dozens of other artwork that the same person sold to Anne Friedman in this gallery, who then resold it to all kinds of collectors. Those are the type of things that keep people in your industry, like you can't sleep at night when you hear about these things. And how does anyone know what is a forgery? Because she, Anne Friedman, showed those art. Well, she didn't just say, oh, okay, thank you. I believe you. She showed it to some of the world, the leading scholars and curators on Rothko. And they said, yes, absolutely. This is a great find. I know a little bit about the Nodler frauds, and uh, I haven't seen the movie. I'm glad you told me about it because I didn't know it was out, but I'm going to go find it. That was uh, horrific. And yes, the one thing that kept me awake at night, we had what we called a guarantee of authenticity. When Sotheby sold a painting or a work of a furniture or any work, we guaranteed what we said in the catalog with one exception, and that was the field of old masters. The reason being that old master scholarship changes by the year. Was it the hand of? Was it the student of? Was it partially by? All of the questions about old masters that keep people guessing. But there were many artists that were fairly easy to copy, and that's what we worried about. We did a lot of work on provenance, who had owned it, 
proof of title and as well scholarship of looking at the work and seeing if it was really by that artist. But that was a big risk. We had a very large errors and omissions insurance policy, but nonetheless, we had big exposure there. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, I think people buy at auction houses. I think they do know about that guarantee of authenticity. Right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It does give you that guarantee, I suppose. So, for example, something other than an old master, uh, like a Rothko, if it was discovered that it actually wasn't real or done by Rothko, and you had sold it, Sotheby's had sold it, you would have given back all the money to the buyer? We would have. It was very clear. You know, you mentioned Van Gogh's irises, which is absolutely gorgeous. And I wonder whether you could walk us through that process. How did you get that in the first place? What's the provenance of that? After Van Gogh did the work, maybe he gave it to his brother or his brother's dealer. I think that happened for a while. But how did Sotheby's acquire it? And what happens? I don't remember all the details, particularly the early provenance of it where it was owned. But it was owned by a museum up in New Hampshire that was a kind of a private museum of a prominent New York family. And they decided the prices, if you remember the late 80s in the art world, the market was being driven largely by new Japanese buyers. The Japanese came racing into the market and they wanted any French impressionist and were paying really major prices. And so the family decided to sell it from this private museum in New Hampshire and said, we can use those funds to really build a much broader collection. So that's how it, they made that decision, and they were thrilled when we got 40. The price was $49 million plus 10%, which was the buyer's premium, which brought it up to 53.9. That enabled them to go buy a lot of other smaller and less valuable works of art. So that's a process that goes on a lot, where people will say, I'll sell at a, a high point in the market and diversify my collection. And when you say buyer's premium, is that a commission that goes to Sotheby's or that's something else? That's a commission that goes to Sotheby's. We changed that commission to be a 15% on the first $50,000 and then 10% above that. It's now been changed several times. The reason being that there's so much competition to get consignments, to get the sellers to sell with Christie's, Sotheby's, Phillips, whoever, that you basically don't get a commission from the party that's selling the art. In fact, sometimes you have to pay them part of the buyer's premium. The whole pricing of the services has gotten more competitive and almost all is paid for by the buyer through through the buyer's yeah. premium. I mean, people could relate to that quite easily if you think about buying or selling an apartment or a house. There's usually, you know, there's a commission and often it's split between the buyer and seller, but that's subject to that happens to be a tradition, but it doesn't mean it's the case all the time. And I think you're talking about just differential of power in the process. You could drive a, an economic advantage. You know, the time flies in these podcasts. I don't know quite how, how it happens so fast. And I feel like there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. But maybe I could ask you this about lessons learned, because you wrote a book, as you mentioned earlier, that, you know, Nose for Trouble is a good title, by the way. And I'm sure you reflected on things that you learned along the way, but Lehman Brothers are really different than Sotheby's. And of course, you did some other things along the way as well. So what are some of the things that you discovered that you learned about that you think might be, you know, potentially generalizable to lots of other people who are never going to be the CEO of Sotheby's? I've been involved with the most important part of my life has been something called the Posse Foundation. Posse started uh, 30 years ago as a way of sending bright kids from the inner city 
in a cohort of 10 kids to an elite university, Vanderbilt being the first, we found that these kids, when given a, I call it a traveling support squad, their own team that trained together for their senior in high school and then went off to a university, 90% of them are graduating, three quarters of them become president of something on campus. And Posse, I've been chairman of it for 15 years and now I've moved on from that role, but we're now at 60 universities every major elite university you can name, with the exception of the Ivies, because they say they don't accept merit scholarships, we give a 100% merit scholarship, a leadership scholarship to these young people. And they are going on to become presidents of universities. Uh, The president of Ithaca College is a Dominican woman, 43 years old, Shirley Collado. The uh, partners in law firms, CEOs of the largest multicultural ad agency, Uniworld Group, is Monique Nelson. You look for leaders, you find leaders, you give them the support, and they become leaders in life. Anyway, Posse has been my passion. That's To me, the art world will do what the art world does, but we've now sent 10,000 kids on Posse scholarships to these universities, so that's been a lot of fun. It's really interesting because the innovation you're describing is in the name, 10 people together. There are plenty, I'm going to say not enough, but plenty of places and groups that try to help underprivileged kids get to fulfill their potential at university, but they're often alone. In fact, they're almost always alone. I think about it here at Dartmouth or other, you mentioned the Ivies, any of those schools where I hear similar stories, and it could be very hard to find people like you. Now, I want to be clear in saying that all of the Ivies, and Dartmouth has actually been a leader in this regard, have become so much more diversified in terms of the... It's it's unbelievable, really, compared to... I've been 28 years at Dartmouth, and it really is dramatically different. But each individual person is coming by themselves, and they have to build their own network. But the posse idea is kind of like a genius idea, because you have a team, you have friends, you have support group right from day one which gives you huge comfort level. You never have to worry about having nothing to do on a Saturday night in the first month when you don't know anybody because you know nine other people. Exactly. And that's the way it works. And they help identify, early identify a problem. If somebody has a family member that's sick back at home, they know it and they tell the Posse team and our trainers and uh, our staff are on top of it. So that's why we have a 90% graduation rate, which the young people you're talking about at Dartmouth and other great schools, sadly, there's a higher dropout rate because they are alone. It's very challenging when you're in a new culture, in a new world. Yeah, I actually don't know the data on that, but it is definitely more challenging. So is this an idea that you had originally or you were part of a team? How did this start? No, a woman named Debbie Beal, who, believe it or not, 30 years later is still the CEO and was the founder of Posse, was a 23-year-old, 24-year-old, young, idealistic, charismatic woman who was at a group called City Kids in New York. It was a youth leadership group. And she had an interview with a kind of a focus group with a bunch of kids that had dropped out of college and said, why are you home? And one young man said, if only I'd had my posse with me, I would have been fine. Debbie was smart enough. She listens well. Mm -hmm. She said, what's a posse? What are you talking about? He said, my guys, my gals that back me up. She called a professor at Vanderbilt and said, would you guys take a posse? The first one was actually only six. 
And uh, Vanderbilt was, frankly, a lily-white Southern University. And today, it's about 30 35% diverse. Classy has changed Vanderbilt. It has changed Brandeis. It has changed Cal Berkeley. We are at all these great universities, Agnes Scott, Davidson, UVA. All of these schools now have Many of them, actually, University of Wisconsin takes four posses from four different cities every year, 40 kids a year. Wow. So it's really, really taken hold. Yeah, that's a lot. You don't have to be a big enough school to be able to accommodate that. But are all posses always 10 people or is there some variation? 10 is the norm. Occasionally, they'll be unable to choose. the. We give them 20 finalists and they usually pick the 10 posse members from the 20 finalists. And then we help the other 10 with placement at other schools, but it's uh, almost always 10 kids. Got it. Got it. You yourself went to Vanderbilt. I did. Right. Yeah. But I think I was reading you grew up in modest circumstances. I did. Yeah. A very loving family, but not a lot of money in East Tennessee. Was a good athlete, played basketball, and was a pretty good student. And so I went to Vanderbilt on half basketball and half academic scholarship and had some good luck from there. It really is amazing the power of a university to open the doors for high potential young people. And obviously it doesn't work for everyone, but it's one of the things I think I'm really excited when I see the energy and the effort that goes into some of the outreach that I know Dartmouth does and plenty of other schools as well to try to find. Because, you know, I think about it, there are kids, could be in Tennessee, could be in Texas, could be in New Hampshire for that matter, that they never heard of Harvard or, you know, maybe they saw it on a TV show, but it didn't mean anything to them. And by luck of the genetic draw, they're smart enough to hack it but they'd never be given the opportunity if they wouldn't be discovered. And to me, it's the ultimate talent pool and the ultimate kind of draft, if you think about it and as a sports analogy, where the payoff is so enormous for the individual, for the school, and for their own families too, where they often go back. I was lucky after Vanderbilt to go on a Corning World Travel Fellowship. Some of your listeners may remember a great fellow named Charlie Ravenel. He was a quarterback at Harvard. And he was the first Corning fellow back in the 60s. Corning expanded the program to five universities, one of which was Vandy. And so those of us who got it in the early years have continued it on. And give you a quick little story. Two, three years ago, a young woman from Kentucky won the fellowship, the traveling fellowship, and she went off to study. And her goal, her topic was civilian perceptions of the military. And she went to Egypt and she went to Iraq. She went to Afghanistan. She went to some very troubling and troubled countries. She was coming back to go to work for Deloitte's in consulting. You know what she's doing today? She applied for the U.S. Naval Intelligence, OCS, Officers Candidate School, after this fellowship and learning what she learned about the world. And she is now a defense analyst for the Navy. I watched this young woman evolve as a human being and see what she really wanted to do in life as a result of education and the world being opened up to her. It's really wonderful when you see, as you do, I'm sure, regularly with your work at Dartmouth, see these kinds of developments of young people. Yeah, it really is one of the most rewarding things. You're right. Let's wrap up. I'd like to ask a very specific advice question to wrap up. And it's that one bit of advice that you would give, but not in general, but to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, what little bit of advice would you give yourself about what life is like, what you should do or not do or think about? What would be that one piece of advice for the 21-year-old Michael Ainsley? Oh, boy. Stay humble. 
be curious, never take things for granted, and give back. You cannot give back enough. I actually have an axiom that I live by. I try and do something for a young person every single day. It may be a phone call. It may be connecting them with somebody. And I'm at a point where there aren't a lot of things that satisfy me at this point. I've gotten to a point in life where I'm pretty comfortable, but this satisfies me. I see so many ways that this ends up helping a young person. So give back to young people is to me the most important gift in life. Michael Ainsley, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast and having this wide-ranging conversation. It's really been fun. Thank you, Sid. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you Season 3 and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.